It's so good to be with you once again. I was thinking about that and saying we got to start meet, stop meeting like this. And hopefully before too much longer we'll be able to meet in our normal way. But until then we'll do what we can and what we have to do. And just know that I really appreciate you taking the time to view these. And I hope that they bless you and feed you spiritually and give you some things to think about. Now this is actually our Sunday school lesson for the 19th of April. And that date brings up all kinds of memories for me, as I'm sure it does for you. But we have something happy to think about instead of just the sadness of that date. And that is the fact that we serve a risen Savior. But something that I am afraid a lot of believers don't consider is that every part of the life of Jesus is absolutely critical and necessary or we don't have redemption. Think about this. If Jesus had never been born, well, that's obvious, isn't it? We wouldn't have a Savior. God had to put on flesh in order to come and die for us. That's the plan. That's the operation. And so God came and became a human being. But if the little baby had been killed by Herod, then we wouldn't have redemption because the little baby had to grow up and he had to live as a young boy and then as a young man. And he lived a perfect life, always keeping the law, doing everything that God required. Doing it perfectly is pretty amazing, isn't it? And then when we think about that, we think about Jesus becoming a man. We think about that time when John the Baptist points him out and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Well, if Jesus had not uh, been born or if he had not survived his infancy or if he had died as a child or if somehow he had not lived a perfect life, what would we have? We'd have absolutely nothing. For if Jesus had gone to the cross as a sinner, his death would have meant no more than your death or my death on the cross. I used to sing a song and you've probably heard the song too if you're of any age. It says, I should have been crucified, I should have suffered and died, I should have hung on the cross in disgrace, but Jesus, God's Son, took my place. The only thing that is right about that is that, number one, I should have had that punishment, and number two, Jesus took my place. But the truth of the matter is, had I hung on that same cross with those same nails driven in by the same soldiers, I would have died and gone to hell. You see, Jesus is the only one who could take that cross and do anything good. He's the only one who could take those nails and cause those to become salvation for us because He is the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. All of the Old Testament imagery about the sacrifices are fulfilled in Jesus Christ because He was the one who was qualified to die for us. But if Jesus had died on the cross and been laid in Joseph's tomb and never came out, what good would that do us? We would have no redemption because he had to conquer death, hell, and the grave. And if he had been raised from the dead, but had never ascended to heaven, took up office in the temple somewhere or in Jerusalem somewhere, something like that, then uh, he would still be alive today but it would do us no good because it's in the whole picture of Jesus coming to earth as God in flesh, living a perfect life, dying upon the cross as the sinless substitute for our sins, bearing the wrath of God, 
and then rising from the dead to show that God accepted the sacrifice. And then he has to go back up to heaven because there are some things that need to take place in order for us to be saved and to remain saved and even to get to heaven. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Well, captain doesn't mean it sounds like just a rank to us. At one point in my life, my dad was a captain in the United States Army. What does that mean? All I knew him was his dad, you know. But in the uh, original language of the New Testament, a captain was someone who would lead and some would say blaze a trail. It's Jesus in his, his ascension that blazed the trail, remember he is the way, the truth, and the life, to take us from earth to heaven at the point of our death or at the rapture of the church. So all of this is necessary and all of it has to fit together. It's the perfect plan of God that was planned sometime in eternity past and made efficient for us on that day that you confess Jesus as Lord. Somebody said, with the Father I was saved before the foundation of the world. With the Son I was saved when He said it is finished on Calvary. And with the Holy Spirit I was saved on that day that I put my faith and trust in Christ. So it takes all three of the Trinity and it also takes every portion of the life of Christ to bring us into salvation and keep us saved. So last time we uh, talked about this, we uh, talked about that Jesus went, according to John 14, 2 and 3, to prepare a place for us. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Then we said also that he ascended so that he could send the Holy Spirit to us. That's in John 14, 16. He says that he will not leave us as orphans, but he will send another like him. Not another that is different, another like him. And the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is the one that he sent to indwell us. Thirdly, we said, to allow us to do the greater works. In John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said that we would actually be a part of a greater work and do greater works than he did while he was here on the earth. That's kind of mind-boggling. And then we said, fourthly, that he ascended so that by sending the Spirit, we could have his presence at all times. And we talked about the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a promise to everyone who is a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pick up now. If we were to go on and say number five, why did Jesus ascend? Why is that important? And why does the Bible speak so much about it? Well, let's think about what it says in Ephesians um, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says that, the, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. I think Paul was making a little bit of a jab at Caesar. Caesar thought he was Lord. And in fact, not too long after Paul wrote that, uh, people were commanded to ascribe lordship or deity 
to Caesar. Now that had been going on, uh, Caesar, the Caesars, thinking that they are some kind of a deity since Octavian, but it really, really heated up under Nero. And they would come with a sword and say, confess Caesar is Lord. And of course, a true born-again believer could not do that. And they would say that Jesus is Lord and they would lose their life over that. It made Caesar feel very, very powerful, very strong, and no one dared go against him. It was frightening for early believers to have to think that they were facing off someone as powerful and someone as authoritative as Caesar. Now, of course, Caesar is just a title. It means king. It was some, uh, something that Octavian or Augustus took in honor of his uncle when he became the emperor. And Caesar is, uh, well, the Germans called their leaders at one time Kaiser. It's a form of Caesar. And Tsar uh, in Russia, C-Z-A-R. They're all forms of that word. And this person who occupied that position of emperor who called themselves Caesar, whatever, they thought that they were the supreme being and that they were deity. And for someone to defy that, well, there had to be consequences. And that must have been terrifying to those early believers. Is Caesar really in control? And Paul said that when Jesus was raised from the dead, that the Father seated Jesus at his right hand. Now, to be somebody's right-hand man is pretty important. To be able to sit and look God in the eye to a Jew, it meant equality with God. And here Jesus is raised up as a human being, a sinless human, human being, after he had paid for our sins, to be taken and placed at the right hand of God the Father, sitting on a throne equally with him, that speaks of power, that speaks of authority, that speaks of dominion. And Paul said that he is exalted above all rulers and anyone who has any kind of dominion, that his name is more authoritative than any of theirs. And how long does that last? Was that just for that day and age? No, Paul says that it was not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That would include our age. And that means Jesus has not given up any of his supremacy, any of his lordship, any of his rulership. None of that has been diminished and none of that has been given away during all of these years. And I don't know when the Lord Jesus is going to return, but if he doesn't come back for a thousand years, he will still be the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. In other words, he's the king that rules over all other kings and to whom all other kings must submit. It always has been and it always will be that way and that was accomplished when he ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Number six, we would say that Jesus ascended because he went to heaven to intercede for us. I don't know about you, but I need prayer and I really, really appreciate your prayers. I really do. And I've had so many people tell me, you're in our prayers, Pastor, daily. And I can't tell you how much that means to me. But there's something that goes far beyond that because you could be praying for me something like this. Lord, strike him dead, give him cancer, make him go bankrupt, disrupt his family. I mean, that could be a prayer, I suppose. And you could pray for me in a way that is antithetical to the will of God 
There are some times when we pray the things that we want and they're not in the will of God. We all know that. But there's one who always prays in the will of God. There's one who always prays for me, knowing how I really feel, knowing what I really am going through, and knowing who I really am. You don't always know that, and I don't know that about you. But there's one who does know. And the Bible says that he is praying for me and for you if you're a born-again believer. Can you imagine Jesus, how he might pray for you? Well, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the purpose of him living and being in heaven, to pray for you. He's watching over you. He knows where you are. He knows where you've been. He knows what you're heading into. In fact, to me, it's always been interesting that in the Gospel of John, in uh, chapter 17, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus does not do this for lost people. Jesus does not do this for people that he hasn't redeemed, that he hasn't saved. But the moment you and I are saved, we become a part of his family, and a privilege that we have in that is that the master himself, the king himself, is watching over us, and he prays for us. Not only in John 17, when he did that in the garden, but the book of Hebrews says he ever lives to do that. Why? Because he saves us to the uttermost. Jesus is interested in redeeming more than just your soul. He redeems you body, soul, and spirit entirely. And he keeps you, and he is securing you, and he is praying for you as you go through your trials. I don't know what you're going to face tomorrow, but I do know the Lord does. And I don't know whether it's going to be a happy, joyous thing. Maybe you get your stimulus check tomorrow. I don't know. But it's just as true that you also could get a phone call you don't want to get, or you could get a job loss, or you could get a diagnosis from a doctor that you don't want, or you may be up against persecution for your faith. I don't know, but Jesus knows. And Jesus is already praying for you and getting you ready for all of this. And I think about what it says in the Bible about um, Simon Peter in Luke 22. It says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, said Peter, I am ready to go to you even to prison and to death. Now, it sounds like Peter and the Lord Jesus were on two different pages, doesn't it? Was Jesus surprised? Well, after all, I prayed that his faith would not fail, and then Peter denies him. Was Jesus surprised? No, because you look back in that verse, it says, but when you turn back, then, what was he saying? I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to do exactly what I say you're going to do. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. 
Now, where's Peter? He says, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. You know, you and I do that a lot of times. There are things that the Lord has ordained for us. There are things that the Lord is going to lead us through. There are trials we are going to go through. There are storms we're going to go through. And let's face it, folks, sometimes we don't make it out of there the way we ought to. Sometimes we fail. Here's the great thing about this. Jesus in his prayer for Peter, and I believe that would be true for his prayers for us, he already knows the outcome of what we're going through. It's not just random chance. It's not just fate that we're going through. This is Jesus taking us through these things for his glory and for our good. That's why Romans 8, 28 and 29 are in the Bible, to assure us of that. And sometimes we have to fail in order to succeed. Kind of like Moses. We have to fail in order to get where we need to be and to be right with God and right in the way we assess ourselves. Do you think that at this point Peter was as usable to Christ as he would be later on? And the answer, of course, is no. Peter is a little arrogant here. Peter is kind of full of himself. And Peter is thinking that even if all the other disciples fail, no, not me, not me, I'm the one that you can count on. Well, I think that Peter at this point, and Jesus calls him Simon, calls him by his old name. I wonder if there's any significance in that. I think there is. And when he says this, he is telling Peter that what I say is true, but I prayed for you. I prayed for you in your temptation. I prayed for you in your failure. And I prayed for you in the aftermath. I've got a plan for you once you are restored. It's the same thing the Lord does for us. Some of your trials you're going to go through and you're going to succeed. The Lord knows that. And it's by His grace and power that you are ever successful in navigating one of the storms of life. Some of them you're going to fail. And that doesn't mean God is done with you. It means that He is going to use that to teach you and to build you up and make you what He wants you to be. Never be afraid of the Lord's plan. Never be afraid even of the failures that are going to come your way because He's the one that has prayed for you and He's the one that is going to lift you up. And it was the failure and the denial and the disgrace that Peter went through and the brokenness that made him qualified by the Lord to be the one to stand up on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 are saved. This is an amazing turnaround, an amazing story. And why does it happen? Because Peter is such a great person? No, because Jesus has prayed for him just as he is praying for you. Understand that. Take hope. Number seven, he ascended so that he could be our mediator. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, we know that, and there's one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. I'm so glad that Jesus became flesh and blood like we are. I'm so glad He lived here and did it perfectly. And I'm glad that once He was resurrected, He was taken back to heaven because that means that there is one of us that is there as our advocate. He's there as our defender. He's there as our mediator. The devil is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible st says. He stands before the throne night and day. What is he doing? He's telling on us. He's bringing charges against us. He's calling for an arraignment every day against you and against me. And let's be honest, 
He's not always wrong about what he accuses us of, is he? And what happens when he does that? The Bible says that the mediator between a holy God who would in his justice and his wrath uh, want to execute judgment on us and the prosecutor, which would be Satan, here Jesus stands up as the defense attorney, as the mediator, showing the nail scars in his hands and feet and saying to the Father, this has been paid for by my blood, and the Father then throws the case out of court and deals with us as children, not as criminals. The mediator. Have you ever felt like you needed someone to kind of get you an audience with God? I know sometimes as a pastor, I felt like people thought that if I would pray for them, it would be more powerful than their prayers. I know that people would think that maybe if I could put in a good word for them, it would help them to uh, be able to talk to the Lord. Did you know nothing could be further from the truth? Because I'm not your mediator. See, this is one of the reasons that I could never be a Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you as a believer are so sinful that you need a mediator to get you to God. And so what do you do? You go confess your sins to a priest and the priest is the one who can absolve you and he is the one who can go before God. I, I would like to tell anyone who believes that. The Bible says that when Jesus died, the veil that separates you and me from God was torn from top to bottom. And you and I, as believers in Christ, those who have trusted in His death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for our sins in full, we have access before the Father. And why is it that we pray in Jesus' name? Jesus taught us to ask anything in His name, didn't He? And He told us that we're to pray to the Father. So here I am as a sinner. And let's say that I've just committed some awful, awful sin. I'm guilt-ridden, my spirit is broken, and I'm humiliated and disgraced. And here I am, I'm wanting to go before the King of the universe, and I come before Him and I say, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. And you know what happens then? Access is instantly granted. In fact, it was never in question. Why? Because I'm in Christ. And even though I fail and even though I sin, I don't have to go to a human being. I may have to go make it right with a human being, but I don't have to go to a human being to get an audience with God. Just think about that. I do not and you do not have to go through a human mediator, at least not on earth, because we have the man, the human, Jesus Christ, who understands us, who has been through what we have been through, who is, the book of Hebrews says, compassionate and a sympathetic high priest, able to give aid to those who are tempted. He's not mad at you. He knows. You didn't disappoint him because he already knew, just as he did with Peter. He has prayed for you. He is interceding for you. And he mediates for you. Sometimes you get two hostile parties and you need a, a mediator between them. Well, there's one mediator between a holy God and sinful man, and that is the man, the human, Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful thing to think about the fact that he is pleading your case, he is defending you, and he is the one that is coming to your aid to restore you and strengthen you. 
I love it back again under the point we just covered about the uh, intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ because you kind of could combine these, the intercessory ministry and the mediating ministry of Christ because it's kind of summed up in what he said to Peter. He said, I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail and when you have turned back, when you're restored, strengthen your brothers. You know, the Lord is the one that gives us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And how far do we have to go? Those who say God is a God of a second chance. I'll tell you my experience. He's a God of a whole lot more than that. And he prays for me and he mediates for me when I sin that I never get the wrath of God. The wrath of God toward me, toward Greg Keenan, and all of my sin was poured out on Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's as if Jesus is saying when the devil brings accusation that I cannot be put into double jeopardy because the fine, the price, the penalty has already been paid. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. And he's the one that stands in the gap between the prosecutor, Satan, and the judge, which would be the Father. And Jesus is the one who defends me. He defends me even though I am guilty as sin and guilty of sin. And yet he never leaves me. He never turns on me. He never forsakes me. He never gives up on me. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he names all of those things. That's because Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father as your mediator. And then we also find, number eight, that he went to heaven in order to prepare for his second coming. So what does he have to do? I don't know. I don't know. I do know there are some things that have to happen and there are some things that have to be brought into order and uh, there are plenty of people who will tell you what those things are but I'm going to tell you, I don't really know. I don't really know. There have been people much, much smarter than me and people that are much more detailed in their study of prophecy that have predicted the coming of the Lord in generations past. In fact, wouldn't you agree with me that every generation, including those early first disciples, expected to see the Lord in their lifetime? What's my point in all of that? I think by now we ought to be able to say no one really knows. In fact, Jesus told us no one knows the day or the hour. And when are we going to get that through our thick heads? And when are we going to quit listening to people who say that they know? Jesus told us we don't know. And there are things that have to happen that not even God has revealed to us. Now there are some things we can learn and some things we can glean from studying Bible prophecy. I think it's good and I think you ought to do it. But it doesn't give us the whole picture, does it? I don't know who has to be president of the United States in order for the Lord to come. But the Lord does, doesn't he? And he has arranged it so that at the right time, under the right leadership, the coming of the Lord takes place. And that's true for every leader of every nation or whether there even is a nation or not. He prepares all of this. He puts everything in order. And at the exact time that the Lord Jesus has chosen, that's when he is going to come back. You see, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts chapter 1, the disciples were kind of interested in all of this because they were expecting now that they had been through the 
horror and the agony of crucifixion and the fear that they had that they might be arrested and uh, executed as well. Now Jesus is alive. They spent some time with him. It's starting to make sense to them, putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And it says in Acts 1, So when they had come further, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what they're saying? Is this the time? Is this the time when the end comes? Is this the time when you set up your kingdom? Now notice here, the Lord Jesus did not rebuke them and say, Oh, you've got it all wrong. There is no earthly kingdom for Israel. He didn't say that. In fact, he said uh, something that actually kind of affirms what they were asking about. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, that's in the Father's hand. And notice he said it is fixed by his authority. No one's going to change it. Um, we don't speed up the coming of Christ by the way that we live. Neither do we slow it down. And a sinful world, they're not hindering the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we are hindering them, aren't we? So the Lord is going to take us out one day and then seven years later he's going to return to be the king of the earth and that is fixed in the Father's hand and the Father's authority and it's not for us to know. Understand that. How many times does he have to say this? Now here's what he says. Here's what we do know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's kind of simultaneous. And when he had said those things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up, in other words, the same one, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, isn't it interesting, they started that paragraph asking about kingdom stuff and end of the world type stuff. And Jesus basically says, that's not for you to know. Mind your own business. Here's what you do. Here are the marching orders. You wait for the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost, and then you go as my witnesses everywhere I send you. And that's going to be a worldwide ministry, isn't it? Then he's taken up, and as they're looking up, gazing into heaven, there must have been some degree of, of wonder, some degree of awe. There also must have been some sadness. They loved Jesus after all. And then those angels were there. And they said that this same Jesus is coming back. Second coming at the beginning of the paragraph, second coming at the end. Why did Jesus go? Because it wouldn't make any sense for him to say, I'm coming again if I'm already here. His second coming is because he is gone. And whatever it is that he is doing in heaven, he does things for us that we've already talked about. But he is also moving the world around like pawns on a chessboard setting everything up for that day that the Father has chosen and then the Lord Jesus will return. So I don't know what all that entails, but I do know Jesus is up in heaven now while everything is being readied 
for his second coming. The Bible says, The Father said to him, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the Middle East, there wasn't any, there's nothing more disgraceful than to be touched by a shoe or by a foot or something like that. And Jesus said, all of the people who exalt themselves in power and wealth and all of those things against you, pride, they're going to become something that you wipe your feet on. There's a great imagery there. This is the Lord who is in sovereign control of all things. We don't understand that. We don't get it. But by faith, we trust in the goodness of God. So I'll sum it up. Because Jesus is on the throne, you know that he is watching, that he is ruling, and that he is controlling your life and everything else. And because Jesus is on the throne, he prays for you before you go through the times of testing, like Peter, while you're going through the times of of testing, and in the aftermath. And here's the good news. Even if you fail... He's not just looking for the successful, he's praying for the failures. Failures like you and me and the Apostle Peter. And understand that because Jesus is on the throne, he defends you against the devil's accusation and he grants you unobstructed access to the Father. I don't come before the Father because I'm worthy. A preacher friend of mine said one time he was praying and he had Uh, kind of was in a bad place and he said oh father I'm so unworthy to come before you and he said it was almost as if he heard a voice almost audibly say whatever made you think you were worthy in the first place you see folks you and I don't pray because we've done good or because we've kept the commandments or because we haven't sinned we come before God because of Jesus and what he has done so we can come at our best and we can come at our worst because we're coming on the worthiness of Christ And then uh, another thing to understand as we conclude, because Jesus is on the throne, you have his word that he will return. You see, in John chapter 14, when Jesus talks about that, he says, I will come again. I will. That's a promise. And I will receive you unto myself. That means if I die before the Lord comes, the apostle Paul says to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. In fact, the Bible says that when the Lord Jesus returns to take the living believers out, we're going to come with him if we have died. And then those who are alive and remain will be taken out. Somebody asked my father-in-law one time, do you want to go out in the rapture or do you want to die? And Papa Sam says, I want to die. I want to experience everything there is to experience in the Christian life. I want to know what it's like to have angels gathered around me. I want to know what it's like to leave my body and be escorted into heaven. And someone said to him foolishly, Oh, you don't want to go in the rapture? And he looked at them as only he could. And he said, Do you not know and understand the scripture? I'm not going to miss the rapture. I'm going to experience both death And when the Lord comes, the dead in Christ are taken out first. You know what that tells me? The Bible tells me that living or dead, whether I understand it or not, whatever I do, there's someone bigger than me who loves me, who is controlling these things, and who is putting me through things that he understands because he's been there, and he prays for me whether I succeed or whether I fail. And he's also the one that says, your life is in my hand. 
living or dead, I will not forget you, and I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And why is he able to do that? Because he's Lord, because he rules, because he reigns, because he has power, and because there is no one that can approach him because he is exalted not only in that age, but in our age as well, and nothing will ever change that. Be encouraged, child of God. Jesus is praying for you. The ascended Son of God is watching out for you, and he will return for you as well. I hope that encourages your heart, and I hope that it causes you to draw closer to the Lord than you've ever been before, and I hope that it causes you to trust during perilous and uncertain times. God bless you, and thank you for watching this.